This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Today's program is a continuation of last week's when we were with rising tide at the People's Blockade of the Coalport at Newcastle. Today we'll hear from Knitting Nana Dom and about the people who were arrested, from psychiatric nurse Sarah and GP Nicole, and then from the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, Thea, who was just launching her canoe when I found her on the beach. And later I met Sinead, who's involved with the transition of coal workers. Then I talked to an engineer called Graham, who has a whole of society plan, a solution. Following that, I spoke to Gawain, who went to meet Federal Climate Minister Chris Bowen. But we'll start with an electric late night session of New South Wales Parliament two days later, where Greens MP Sue Higginson was trying to firm up a net zero bill by giving it teeth. Just listen to how frustrating it is. Sue Higginson. 75% emissions reduction by 20... It is so depressing. It is so sad. It is so depressing and so sad that you are all sitting here and you've actually got no idea the sort of climate action that we are talking about. You are literally, you don't understand and you're not listening. I will say it one more time. The experts are telling, the experts are telling all of you in this place what climate action in New South Wales looks like. And that is 75% emissions reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2035. They're telling us we can do it. They're telling us it would be good for the state and they're telling us it would be good for the planet. And it would also provide the investment. So please, I will say it one more time, the amendments that you will be voting on are 75% emissions reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2035. And anyone that is obstructing that ambition is not on the right side of climate action and New South Wales and what is in the best interest of this state. In no uncertain terms, we've been told we can do it and we should do it. If you haven't read 
the report from the inquiry into the bill, read it. Just read it. It's really clear. And if you don't want to read that one, read the Climate Council's last report that they tabled. And if you don't want to read that one, go out into the communities yourself that have been impacted and are still being impacted. Those pod villages that have literally displaced people because we're not taking the responsible action that we could all take. You are in this place to do something, to do a thing, to do a good thing, to do the right thing. And if climate action right now is not the most important thing in your mind and doing what is right, 20, 30, 75% reduction and net zero by 2035, then seriously, you should consider your position in this place. Thank you. Uh... I've got one of the knitting nanas here called Dom and... I would like to tell you, listeners, that she is a listener. She told me that she listens to our program quite often, and so I'm more than delighted to have her on the show today. Dom, it's a, such a big thing, this blockade of the harbour, and it ended with people being arrested. What did you make of the whole event? It went for 30 hours on the water and it went for four days altogether. Oh, I loved it. It was so good. It was such a, a happy, fun atmosphere. Not a lot of pressure because we had those permits. It was just a really good time. Yeah. Lots of great people, lots of great energy and doing what we need to do. Yeah. And well, the I... arrests, I had two members of my family arrested. No. Oh, tell the... me about it. Yeah. My husband, he was arrested and my daughter, who was a legal observer, was arrested as well. So she wasn't intending to be arrested. And I saw anyway. something from the um, was it Human Rights Council saying that that should never happen. A legal observer specially branded, isn't it, with a special T-shirt or something saying they shouldn't be arrested. They're yes. there to observe. So what ha what did she yes. make of that? Um, I think she was a bit shocked when it first happened, but she'll yeah. just see what happens. Yeah, she sent me a, because she had her phone because she was, videoing and stuff and observing so she sent me a message to say i've been arrested i was like oh gosh anyway she is a practicing lawyer so yeah and they are branded they all had bright pink vests on yeah so they're quite easy to pick out surely she'll, she'll have some legal avenue out of that that can't be right because you have to be able to yes. permit observation otherwise the police could do whatever they like yes exactly yep so but yeah it was a great Great result, even that, like that was 109 arrests and it's had so much airplay everywhere and I haven't heard anything negative really. Like it's, yeah, been amazing. No. The wonderful organisers at Rising Tide when? did a great job to yeah make it such a great event, make it really positive and, yeah, just really good fun. It was good fun, but it was serious fun yeah. too. The, it was the networking of people there and that next year they want to have 10,000 people and I reckon they'll get it because there were so many. Well, I hope so. Yeah. And, I, you know, the press were, no one could portray that as, you know, hippies. It's not like that. These are the most respectable pillars of society. Everyone I interviewed are the carers and defenders of nature, of society, of human rights. Yeah. That's who they were. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I say with the police. Like, what are they doing? Like, all the there are so many police there, 
<laughs> and they're there for all the good people. All yeah. the good people are there on the beach yeah. and in the water and yeah. people that aren't doing anything wrong. Yeah, hopefully 10,000 people there next year. It was amazing, amazing it, it event. It was, and it'll build. So you're with the Knitting Nanas. You do a lot of stuff, don't you? They pop up everywhere that I go in Sydney, but I think you're in the country. Tell listeners what you do, where you live and what you do. Yes, I'm with the um, Mid-Coast Nanas, but we also travel to, so we're at Taree. We're in a um, nationals area. So every Friday there's Nanas sitting outside our federal minister's office over at Taree. We are also going to Newcastle and joining up with the Newcastle Nanas and also some people from Rising Tide and we go to the Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy's office, on the mm-hmm. first Friday of the month. That came about because of the um, when Rising Tide had their climate camp last year, there was a lady from the Pacific speaking at the camp and we just felt so dreadful mm-hmm. and we, we started going to his office in response to that because he is the Minister for the Pacific. So he was someone that we could easily visit. And so also Central Coast Nana. So there's Nana's from a few different loops yeah. come together to yeah. go to his office. Well, yeah. you were arrested, I believe. Tell us about that. I've been arrested twice now. So mm. um, once at the Pilliger and once at the port in um, Port Botany last year mm. with um, Blockade Australia. And my friend and I, Helen, we were arrested. Helen was locked onto the wheel of a truck, a steering wheel of a truck, and I was sitting on the roof of another truck and we we blocked the exit and entry to this particular part of the port, not for very long, probably less than an hour, just a statement more. I had a, um, a, a big banner on the side of my truck that said, Australia is a climate vandal and Australia continues to be a climate vandal. And then from that, we ended up with those awful protest laws in response to that Mm. came out of the parliament. So my friend and I were being, Helen and I, we were being represented by the EDO and the opportunity came up for us to um, take part in the constitutional challenge against those protest laws. So... We did that with the EGO and um, we're still waiting to hear back. Okay, so it was a constitutional challenge to the legality of those new protest laws. Do you think there's a connection between the people power of the nanas turning up here and there, of these bigger blockade things, um, like of the Port of Newcastle, all sorts? I report on it all the time, as you know, you know, all these different actions. Do you think this actually does shift the public knowledge about climate change, the crisis, and therefore the judges start to think, I have to shift too? I find the courts so far, other than the odd magistrate here and there that throws down ridiculous things, but other than that, they seem to be quite fair. When I first started getting involved in protest, um, one of our friends up here who was involved in the um, protests that went on up here in Gloucester he was a barrister, um, retired barrister. And when I started realising how, I had no idea up until we got involved in that, mm. but how everything was working. I don't know, I was living, I don't know where I was living, <laughs> somewhere in some 
fake bubble. <laughs> but I soon realised how everything worked once I got involved in that protest. And um, then I started doubting everything then mm. because of what I'd seen that was so unfair and unjust and wrong and illegal and all that sort of stuff. And I said to my friend who's a barrister, oh, well, the courts would be corrupted too. And he said, no, the courts are still separate from, they're not, you know, they don't work like that politically. And I, like, when he said that to me, I thought, oh, okay. And then that's what I've seen. That's been my experience. It's been fair, mostly. And the ones that have been fair, people have been able to appeal. And listeners, this is a woman from Gloucester. She just dropped that in. But I hope some of you long-time <laughs> listeners will remember the story about Gloucester, the town that said no to AGL and then the Rocky Hill triumph in court against a coal mine. This is a town that has learned to be activists. And I remember seeing some of you down in the um, Supreme Court with absolute trolley loads of like they look like telephone books, but this is all these sort of legal precedents or arguments or whatever, you know, trolley loads being wheeled in. And these people from this little country town had just put their heads into absolute overdrive to challenge it. And they challenged that big company that was going to frack that territory right, affecting all the waterways right down to the coast. So honestly, you, you've got a good pedigree from where you're coming. You're not living in cuckoo land at all. You're living in this sort of land where... <laughs> You've had a success, and most people need to hear about this because it does feel mostly quite depressing that there's no success, but that wasn't successful, so no wonder you're still doing it. So thank you, Dom. Is there anything more you'd like to say to listeners why they should listen to community radio, for example? Oh, yeah, it's awesome. It's um fantastic. I love your program. I've got it on my podcast list now, so whenever you put one out, I it pops into my list and so informative um, and stuff from all over the place and right down at grassroots right up to like interviews with people right up high in the environmental movement like Antonio Guterres or whatever. But, yeah, very interesting, very informative. Love it. It's awesome. Thanks heaps, Vivian. (laughs) Thank you. So that was Dom, one of the knitting nanas. Up at Gloucester. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. to the Climate Action Show from the Newcastle Coalport blockade. Here is Sarah, a psychiatric nurse on the front line of heat waves and other upsetting climate events, and Nicole, a GP from Cairns. I've found two people in the medical world, one from Doctors from the Environment and the other from Health on the front line. Yeah, I didn't know there were two organisations, but these two will explain that to you. Thank you for being on this program. Why are you here? And tell us about that organisation, what you do. Um, so uh, 
My name's um, Sarah Elliott. I'm a registered nurse and I work in mental health. Um, I've come along as part of the Health on the Frontline group, which is a, a group made up of a broad range of um, healthcare workers, um, including doctors and nurses and allied health. Um, we're all here because we're really concerned about the um, health impacts of climate change and those range across the whole you know, spectrum of um, physical health, mental health. Um, it's, we know climate you know, change is the biggest um, health crisis we're facing this century. Um, 2023, what's on the front of your mind regarding that? When you're working in a hospital, what, what hits you, the connection with climate change? Well, I think, you know, we're probably coming towards another, you know, really hot summer. Um, also, you know, risk of, of health impacts of heat waves, of, um, of fires. Um, I currently work in mental health and, you know, not only do things like increased um, extreme weather events, you know, impact negatively on people's mental health. I mean, everywhere, you know, people presenting with mental health um, conditions also, you know, as well as having them exacerbated by um, the climate crisis also can so sometimes have a higher, you know, rate of chronic condition. They can be at um, increased risk of experiencing social inequality at, at, and more likely sometimes to, you know, be you know living in house, housing that doesn't have um, air conditioning or that's well insulated, um, for instance, and they therefore be more vulnerable to the to heat waves. Sometimes some of the you know patients that I work with also there are medications that also affect their ability to um, thermoregulate, so they're also at increased risk um, from heat waves from that perspective as well. So it's actually um, the climate climate crisis impact on health is it's. It's so like big and it impacts on our health in so many ways that sometimes, you know, we don't think about. Yeah, well, summer now it used to be all oh, summer holidays, time at the beach, but you know, it's often now a feeling of dread, isn't it? What's it going to bring? Either bushfires or heatwaves, yeah. the silent killer, and as you say, silent accelerator of people's existing conditions. So oh, that's that's very touching. Can you elaborate a bit when you say mental health? What sort of things happen to people? Well, I mean, I guess the, the sort of things that immediately come to mind are, you know, increased uh, like rates of anxiety, what we think about as climate anxiety, which is very prevalent. But also, I mean, people who've experienced the sort of uh, effects of um, extreme weather events, have lived through floods, lived through fires, lost their homes. Obviously, that comes with like massive, um, you know, mental health impacts of those sorts of things. But you know, as I sort of said, I mean, you know, even in mental health, we're looking after both mental health and physical health. And, you know, I, I do, you know, sometimes work with people who also, you know, they have cardiovascular disease and also or respiratory like conditions and things, you know, alongside sometimes experiencing mental health conditions. And so, and, you know, the climate crisis and is exacerbating all of those things. I mean, poorer air quality, heat waves, uh, you know, worsening like all of those kind of chronic conditions and um, of course you know that is going to further impact on somebody's mental health as well and their physical health is you know being like is compromised yeah. too. Yeah. I think one of the most moving interviews I did once was the sister of a woman who had developed this extreme paranoia about people coming to help her and she was in a house with no air conditioning the heat wave went on and on for a few days and she died. It was just like that. It was she. Rather than ask for help, she just died, and that's my example that I never forget. Because that lady was talking to me, she was in tears. She said, "No, I want to tell this story." 
was her sister. So that's a that's a really terrible story. And I mean, you know, there are many people out in the community who are, I think are really at you know risk in those kind of events. And it's yeah, I'm really yeah. Sorry to hear that. It's a really awful story. Yeah. That's, I've got another person here from a different organisation called Doctors for the Environment. Tell us about yourself and why you're here. Uh, so my name's Nicole and I'm a GP. I live up uh, in, on Gimoy country, which is up in far north Queensland in Cairns. And I've come down uh, essentially because, as Sarah said, climate change is the greatest threat to human health of the century. Uh, and so I'm here with Doctors for the Environment Australia and Health on the Frontline to bring attention to this and yep, to try and raise, raise the profile of the health impacts of climate change. A lot of people seem to have this climate anxiety. Do you think coming here, getting in a kayak, going out in the thousands, there'd be a lot of thousands of people here, I reckon, do you think that has a, a healthy impact? Yes. I have climate anxiety. <laughs> I think climate anxiety is a really appropriate response to the state of the world right now and the lack of uh, needed action on climate change. And my antidote to that anxiety is to get active with other people who care just as much as I do. Um, it's what I can do within, you know, within the power that I have is really to get active and that definitely helps me. So you're in Queensland. Just to sketch in for a lot of our Melbourne listeners or Sydney listeners mightn't have an idea that the conditions are probably quite different in Queensland. Yeah, they are. I think across the board, like heat, Australia is vulnerable to all the um, impacts of like rising temperatures. Uh, Queensland in particular, like in the far north, you know, we have a higher heat index because it's very humid. So we can have an increase in temperature, which is like less than down south. Um, and our body's ability to manage that is less because of, um, you know, we don't sweat, like we sweat a lot, but because the moisture in the air is, is very thick. And so the sweat doesn't necessarily leave our skin and therefore we can't bring our body temperature down. So actually when you look at, for example, athletes or people working outside, if you look at the heat risk, uh, it's much higher at temperatures which would be considered like not so high down south. Are communities like the local governments or state government, are they putting in place sort of risk management of that? I've heard in America, in Canada, um, you know, they're putting in like cool rooms for people to go to because they've been so shocked by unprecedented heat waves. We're used to heat waves in Australia, but I don't need notice much new infrastructure being put in or alert for people who might be at home just slowly fading away in the heat wave, not realising they're actually dehydrated. Yeah, there's a little bit of work happening around Cairns. Cairns Regional Council is doing a little bit. Uh, there's not enough, like there's not enough public health intervention or education on the effect of heat. And certainly, I think in Australia, just generally, we're known that we're a hot country, so people think that's just normal, uh, and the same in Cairns. But the reality is, is that a very small increase in global temperature results in, you know, uh, increase averages so we get these runs of hot weather which we think is normal but it's actually not um, and the same in terms of nighttime temperatures and you know temperatures have increased which also doesn't allow our body to get back to you know, regulators it needs to so overall no I don't think we've put into place the things we need to you know our that's really climate adaptation and no it's not adequate we're going to see the health impacts of heat over this summer and you know it's going to hit us hard in far north Queensland. Thank you very much. The day started with a dawn reflection and a sacred space. And here's Thea, who I found on the beach with her canoe. A wonderful scene of flotilla of little boats and big boats and police boats, but no coal boats going out or in. And Thea Omorod is here, who's the chair of 
the Australian religious response to climate change theory. Why are you here? I'm here because I believe those of us who have a voice, who have an education and live in a democratic system, we really need to speak out. And particularly in Australia, because Australia, being the third largest exporter of coal, needs people of faith, needs all people, people of different um, backgrounds. In fact, it's better. The more people of the more different backgrounds that speak out, the more convincing that is for our government to actually take some courage and show some leadership in relation to stopping coal and gas exports. Our current government is quite good on driving renewable energy, batteries, EVs. But on the one hand, we're stopping emissions. We're trying to mitigate emissions. On the other hand, we're pouring fuel on the fire. So, um, yeah, and I just think religious people should be in there, in the fray, showing our values, expressing our values, along with other citizens. Just because we're people of faith doesn't mean we can't be... Um, motivated and involved citizens. Well, the politicians, I've been asking them, how will this affect people in Canberra? I've met one person who is an environment minister from the ACT, but there are no other environment ministers here. There are no other people from the federal government that I can see than the ones I interviewed before. But fighting, being forceful, pressure, that's one thing. But I think you're having a meditation session here, a kind of a prayer session tomorrow morning at dawn and then a bit later there's going to be people just gathered here silently. That's not pressure. What do you think that is? I think it's a kind of a pressure. We're, it's our symbolic action, what we can contribute to um, encourage the government and pray for the government to do the right thing, to show leadership on climate change We'll be praying for that outcome, and that's, that's genuine. There are all sorts of ways to, in your, as you say, put pressure on the government. Um, I think if they see diverse people involved, they're going to feel that it's more politically palatable to make the changes that are being called for. The finance world, I think, is becoming more and more aware that money shouldn't be going into coal, oil and gas, that they eventually will be stranded assets. They have to be a stranded assets or our survival depends on it. Um, and so they're becoming more interested in more ethical and sustainable investments. So, yeah, the, the tide, rising tide, well, the tide is going in one direction, and that is upwards towards renewable energy. Thank you, Thea. She's about to get in her kayak or canoe and go out there. And tonight, this is not the usual uh, few hours blocking the coal port. This is all night tonight and tomorrow. And it's been yesterday, like it's been a, a really big event blocking the channels where the coal, huge coal ships come in and out here at Newcastle. Thank you, Thea. Okay, thank you. We're at Newcastle Beach and I wondered how the big jobs transition was going up here in the Hunter Valley. We've touched on this subject many times, but I'm hoping it's coming to a reality now, a big transition of workers. They all know that the days of coal are 
numbered. Hi, I'm Sinead Francis-Cone. I am a union delegate in my workplace. I'm active with the local Greens party, have run as a candidate, and I'm pretty invested as a hunter local in uh, looking after both the people and planet here into the future. And tell us about the jobs people say we have to keep the coal mines going and expanding. Some of them are still on the desk of the Minister for Environment for Approvals. Yeah, look, um, you hear these sort of questions. I think the first thing is that a large portion of this is out of our hands, both in international demand and the companies that um, are operating within this industry. So I think what we've seen time and time again are places where big industry has come in, extracted, particularly in the resources um, area, have extracted what they're looking for and just left communities for dead and the community social network has been obliterated along with the, um, the planet or that, that part of the world. So um, what we've got now are some really great uh, best practice examples, um, particularly looking at places like the Ruhr Valley in Germany that have successfully moved completely out of coal mining and not a single job has been lost. We're looking to follow that sort of an example here. So the Hunter Jobs Alliance, which I volunteer with and spend some time supporting, uh, are a combination of unionists and environmental activists that, and different groups that form part of that alliance that really have got together with that in mind, um, making sure we look after the people and the the planet in, and locally. Um, so there's been a number of different parts of what these plans look like. Um, Hunter Renewal have not so long ago launched their blueprint for the future of the Hunter that's available online. So they've looked closely at the potentials of each different site. They've worked alongside First Nations groups like the Wanarua Plains Clan, whose country is uh, right around where um, lots of the big coal mines are in the Upper Hunter. Um, so there's a lot of different local stakeholders that have been involved there in that and um, I think they look like really good plans and what we need to do is well, what the Hunter Jobs Alliance has been calling for is a commitment to particularly well, this just does overlap a bit with Greens policy there are some differences but we need a local transition authority who the people on the ground are the, the ones that will know uh, what the ripple on effects will be from different changes. They know where resources are needed. Uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of solution. What we found around other places is that for some people it may mean um, that they prefer an early retirement. For some people they will have a large degree of uh, transferable skills that they are almost ready to move into um, a similar kind of form of work to what they're doing. For some people it's a case of completely upskilling. So a big part of that is a TAFE Centre of Excellence which uh, we, like as the Hunter Jobs Alliance has been calling for, the Greens have been calling for and um, the government in New South Wales has committed to. Uh, just in the last week or so, uh, the Ties Hill TAFE campus in Newcastle has been identified as one of the most promising places to establish such a centre of excellence. Uh, the university will have a lot to contribute to this as well and they've already um, been doing things like creating innovation hubs in the Upper Hunter so I think they've been aware of uh, some of the needs um, for innovation um, coming over a long period of time. But I think, um, yeah, so many of the solutions are in the local community and different innovators who are aware of the needs on the ground. And this is about combining that, providing the outlets for the skills and reassuring people that their futures and their conditions aren't at stake. There will be other things involved like incentivising employers to take on ex-coal workers. Um, that will mean a bit of financial support. People 
you know, have have financial commitments and lifestyles based on the incomes they were making, um, driving trucks in the mines, for example. And so that will be a big part of it, needing to help people rather than change overnight. We know things, we can't shut down yeah. um, coal mines overnight. No new coal. No new coal. All right, that's yeah. simple. You said a lot of it's out of our hands, and I did speak to Chris Bowen maybe a few months ago, and he said that, yeah, big decisions about this are being made overseas. And I thought... Well, where do we fit in giving permits to, can we not just not give permits to new coal? That would be the ideal. Yeah, absolutely. That would be the ideal. And, you know, to be honest, from a from an industrial relations point of view, refusals to open new coal mines would actually signify a more urgent need to policymakers to actually get this happening now and get people into new jobs now, mm. yesterday. And so this doesn't happen overnight. What we've found um, in other places, like the, like the Royal Valley, is that integrated training is needed. So as people are finishing up their jobs, when we know a mine or their, their role in the mine, our mine is closing, they begin training. Yeah. So it, there's no gap. So, and a, so that's the sort of situation we're looking for. So if there was a clear indication of no new coal mines, that would be pushed to, to yeah, that would trigger that sort of a response. So, okay. well, what do you think about this kind of people power? We're at Newcastle, rising tide have organised a massive number of people here, and they've been overnight kayaking on the uh, coal lanes, you know, to stop the coal ships. But um, what's the effect of that, or where does that fit into the big equation? Because all of these decisions about transition plans are, are made elsewhere. How does this fit in? Does this frighten anyone? It, it might frighten people. I think the common factor for every person who's taking action here over the weekend is that uh, rather than feeling scared and nervous and helpless about what's happening in the future, this is action we can take. Uh, you know, people have voted in ways that they feel should support the kind of things that we're calling for here. Uh, but the call hasn't been strong enough for the action to reflect that, or for the political action to reflect that, and for legislation to reflect that. So we've heard even from coal miners today, uh, when when you hear from coal miners around the valley, they know change is coming. What they want to see is security for their future. And a, a clear, no new coal mines, a clear this is the plan, that's what security is needed. After that, I was introduced to someone who had a big vision. It was so hot by then that we had to climb over a fence and sit on a log among the tea tree. Yes, my name is Graham Wood. Um, I'm an engineer. I've worked in engineering for over 40 years. And I've come to this event uh, to lend support to the environmental movement uh, Rising Tide and also Sail for, for Sanity, uh, which is where Simon Leslie and Tom Hunt sailed in their little outrigger canoe from Wollongong up to Newcastle Harbour. Okay, now you've got a, a book sitting on your knee and it's very tantalising because it's a big thick thing with about 18 solutions but tell us about, we, we're all aware that we're in a sort of situation of overshoot, our planetary boundaries are being overshot in many ways, not just the carbon but in many aspects. When you've drilled down into looking at that holistically, what is the main thing you see? The main thing I see is that, as you've said, we're not in ecological balance with our environment. We have overshot so many of the parameters which are necessary to sustain life. And it's an inconvenient truth uh, which many people find difficult to come to terms with. But 
have a look at the core issues, nearly all of them can be pointed back to our political leaders who desire constant growth and for constant growth they encourage us to have increased population, they promise or strive to have increased GDP and everything that they're encouraging us to do is taking us further away from uh, being in ecological balance with our environment. We have overshot the environment by 170%. That's staggering. Mm. We're running on Earth's capital as well as its interest. In other words, not only do we take from the Earth more than it can replace each year, but we're consuming the capital and it's finite. We live on a finite world. You cannot grow forever on a finite world. It's fundamentally impossible. Even school kids get that concept. And so there's a couple of fundamental issues that we have to address as unpleasant and difficult as they are. And that is we have to have a steady state economy and an economy that is in balance with the Earth's ecosystems. Without the services that the that the earth provides for us, we just couldn't survive. There's, there's no way we can. What sort of legislative framework do you think we need to control politicians just going into this full growth, overshoot type pr project? Do they always do it? Every new government comes in with a sort of a plan for something bigger and better and um, more growth, more jobs, more growth. Well, what, what would constrain them and also, the politicians are not here listening to the likes of us. They, they don't seem to hear from scientists. They don't seem to hear from doctors for the environment. They don't seem to hear from farmers, really, in the way that we would like them to. What kind of organisation would, would get that information through to them? OK, a very deep question. If you look at the fundamental issues here, politicians need to be elected. They have to be appreciated and meet the needs of the electorate. The media are captured. It's called, the phenomenon is called state capture and everybody is influenced by the media and what they hear. And most people don't understand that we've exceeded the limits. And these are serious issues. The politicians either know this, most of them know it I believe, but they know that if they stand up and say that, they won't get elected. So they say the things that they believe the electorate want to hear so that they can get re-elected. Currently we're exceeding the Earth's capacity <clears throat> by consuming 170% of the Earth's natural resources. I found that the Graham, in his engineering work, part of it was analysing defects in aeroplanes that had crashed and so it's a kind of whole forensic field of detective work I imagine. He's now putting his mind to the societal changes, the political changes, the environmental ecological attitudes that we need. Graham just tell us if you put your engineer's hat on looking at a plane crash what What's different about the way you look at that than the way we're looking, for example, at the climate issue nowadays? Well, my perspective is that there is no difference. When I investigate an aircraft crash or an accident, I have to deal with reality. I have to deal with the facts as they really are. I have to put aside ideology, opinions, uh, inconvenient truths, and I have to deal with the absolute reality 
of what caused it and why it was caused. And in many cases, it's human behavior. And that we have to look at. And it is totally relevant to solving the climate crisis. And the climate crisis, just one part of the major issues facing humanity. We are in catastrophic overshoot. And it's overshoot of so many areas. Coal is, uh, creates pollution and that's just one of the parameters. And, and pollution, again, is one of the fields that we have to resolve. For example, we're running out of critical resources. We have to resolve them. And when I'm investigating an aircraft crash, I have to deal with those realities. I have to put aside the ideologies and the egos and the uh, attitudes of, of the air crew and those that maybe designed the aeroplane and don't want to hear that there's a flaw in their approach and have to deal with the true facts as they are. So I've applied that to my solutions to the climate change and I see that there are multiple solutions. There is no one single cause and no one single solution. It is an, requires an integrated package of multi-dimensions. We need to have enduring legislative framework to make sure long-lasting decisions can be made that will survive for generations till the end of the century, so a hundred year decisions need to have strength behind them. Graham, what, what sort of agency, just to put it more precisely, would you envision for government to get the kind of advice and big long-term plan that they need? I would recommend an independent organisation, which is still part of government, but that it is protected from political, direct political interference. And for that we need an organisation modelled on the CSIRO which is staffed by qualified individuals, appropriate experience, whose work is independently peer-reviewed and the organisation that they work within is accredited. And that all of that information that they use and the results and the analysis and the conclusions that they come to are open in the public domain. Then we have honest, genuine solutions. But the decisions that the politicians make need to be made by the experts. You don't have the Minister for Health doing making decisions about brain surgery. You have the experts making those decisions. And to protect that organisation, I propose that there be an independent review committee made by experts from throughout industry, accredited experts, and that we have a citizens' assembly which oversees it, and that the Governor-General assigns the CEO position to this organisation so that we know it's above and independent of politics. Yeah. Then we will have the decisions made by the right people at the right time which will not change with a change of government. Okay, thank you very much. So we've been talking to Graham Wood up here in Newcastle and the provisional title of his uh, working title of his book sitting here on his knees called Their Future is in your hands. I hope we hear from him again when it's published. Between now and the next big blockade, let's not drop the ball. The planning is already in, in motion and they want to build their numbers. You can join. Just check out Rising Tide and find ways that you can contribute. After hearing the jeering and shouting in the New South Wales Parliament two days after the blockade, when Sue Higginson and others spoke so forcefully in defence of speedy climate action, I think one thing we could all do 
is stack the public galleries of parliament, wherever you are, whichever state parliament or federal parliament, if you're in Canberra, and you could be a witness to where the blockages are. I was the only one in the public gallery that late evening, as Sue Higginson explained how quickly and easily we could get to net zero and have a bill that had accountability built into it. But many of the MPs were just talking and sort of looking, you know, really as if it was a joke. I glared at them, but that's just one person glaring. It doesn't really add up to much. But if they had 50 or 60 citizens glaring at them and people letting them know where people who vote, I think the tone would change. Things might change. It's at least one thing I reckon you could do. But on a more diplomatic note, here is Gawain. Gawain Powell-Davies is with us now to report on a meeting with Chris Bowen, Minister for Climate Change in the Australian Federal Parliament. Welcome, Gawain. In what capacity were you visiting Chris Bowen? Hi, Vivian. I was visiting Chris Bowen with a group of people from the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, and my specific role in that is that I chair the Federation of Australian Buddhist Councils and also the New South Wales Buddhist Council. So I was there representing a Buddhist voice alongside Christians and a Muslim gentleman. Well, so Chris Bowen would have been very respectful to you, I'm sure, and happy that you represent probably a wide number of people out in the suburbs who you know, he wants to reach. It was very much to say that we supported the government being more active than previous governments when it came to climate change action, but also that we knew that the science told us that we needed to go as fast as we possibly can and a bit faster if we're not going to end up in a very difficult situation. Um, And certainly he understood that perspective and was not surprised to hear it. No. Well, look, today I'm going to the New South Wales Parliament to celebrate a net zero bill which aims to decrease the state's emissions by 70% in the next seven years. Melbourne listeners might like to know this. In New South Wales, they're actually going to do this. So reducing our emissions is a big job. And Chris Bowen would be saying federally, this is still a big, big job. And it's important. But what did Chris Bowen say about our exported emissions? That's what I'm really interested in, the ones that are embodied in coal and gas. Look, that was very interesting, and we certainly very directly said that we were concerned not just about current exports but about plans for new coal and gas production, which would go overseas, you know, over the next five, ten years. The view that he put very strongly was that... um, a lot of our exports went to South Korea and Japan and that the consciousness of the need to decarbonise was much, much less there. And therefore, they were particularly wanting reliable supplies of fossil fuels over the next five or ten years. And Chris Bowen felt that if we were able to show ourselves to be a responsible and consistent supplier of those, then when technology is there and the appetite for it is there in those countries, then we would be well placed to be a reliable supplier into the future. And his comment was, if they don't get it from us, 
the places that they're likely to go to are Russia, China and North Korea. And that the chances of any kind of um, public pressure or um, pushing the envelope uh, because of democratic pressure um, obviously was much smaller in those countries. Well, <laughs> he, he said to me, I interviewed him ages ago, or maybe six months ago, and he said, look, those decisions are made all overseas. It's sort of out of our hands. So that's interesting that he has a, now a, another idea. Well, you were with ARC, and within that, you're head of the Buddhist Council, as you said. And how, mm-hmm. how did you prepare your mind, you know, to meet this? It's a kind of a warrior situation, isn't it? You're representing citizens and a certain point of view or a certain philosophy, and he's representing pure politics, you know, what, what keeps power going, and his own ideals. I think Brisbane's got quite a few ideals about climate action. But how did you prepare yourself to just be firm and yet receptive? Well, I think it's not a warrior situation, actually, and that's one of the problems is we've got stuck in that mode of thinking, particularly mm. because of the brick wall that was erected by the previous governments. Um, my sense is that well-meaning politicians, and I think Chris Byrne is a very well-meaning politician, are caught in a very difficult balance between what is needed and what is possible. And it's not just that they'll get thrown out if they go too far. It's that, in fact, their job is to stretch what is possible as far as they can without breaking it. Because if you break it, then nothing happens at all. And they have to make calculations that we know very little about and don't fully understand. We don't know the pressures they're under. We don't know the points at which the people they're cooperating with will say, sorry, not going to cooperate anymore. So I think we need to, um, I I prepared myself by um, thinking as much as I could about the situation that he was in, as I imagined it, that what we could offer in the first place was support for what he was doing, so that we're seen as being on the side of his ideals rather than um, an enemy of his um, political pragmatism, Um, and also being open that we didn't fully understand the situation that he was in. And a very interesting point is that he was quite upbeat about what the government was doing. Uh, He said nothing about his announcement of the National Capacity Investment Scheme, which came only about a week later, which is really a very significant development We knew nothing about that, and we could have been hitting him on the head for not doing more, not doing more, without knowing that, in fact, in the background, he and his colleagues were working away on this very important initiative. So I think we have to be quite uh, respectful of the situation he's in and see him as a well-intentioned politician who can do what well-intentioned politicians can do. Mm. Um, and we shouldn't expect more. Right. All right. Well, one of the things that they're proposing is a climate conference, and my most of the people I'm talking to are still reeling from the fact that the next COP starting this week is going to be in Dubai, you know, and oil deals, according to the BBC, are going to be done there for future yeah. oil. 
So um, I want to know what he said about that. And I, I remember one of the Pacific climate warriors, Joseph Sikulu, said he thought it was actually a good idea for Australia and the Pacific to host a future conference of the parties in our region. Well, what do you think? And what does, oh, I'm pretty sure I know what Chris Bowen thinks, but what do you think? The information from the BBC that I saw this morning makes you wonder a bit. But I imagine there's a huge way to go before you can really think about it in detail and, and, and really understand how we could do it in a way that wasn't co-opting the um, Pacific nations rather than having them as true partners. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Gowen. That's terrific. And would you go and visit him again? Would you advise listeners as citizens or whichever action group they're in, would you think it's worth meeting? A, uh, I know it's sometimes hard to get an appointment with these people, but I also feel they should hear our voice. And I was surprised at Newcastle. People told me, don't be surprised, but really there were only the Greens there. None of the other political parties seemed to be represented at all. I spoke to one environment minister and she said, look, I'm the only environment minister here. And there were thousands of people on the beach, you know, drawing attention to the huge coal trade that we have here. So do you think it's actually worthwhile visiting members of parliament? Look, absolutely. The, the question came up of, it might have been Chris Byrne, might have been one of the others, about you know whether we should keep visiting and putting pressure on uh, politicians who are in marginal seats. And he said, don't just think about whoever it was, so don't just think about marginal seats. They all need to know that there is public pressure behind this. And they take that with them when they go into the discussions in parliament. You never know how that plays out, but you have to think they'll be hearing plenty from the other side. And if there's a vacuum from our side, how, how, how can you expect them to um, understand that there is public pressure behind them? That's it was very striking to me that if we were to say, you're not taking it seriously enough for us to take you seriously, all we're doing is putting ourselves offside with them for no good purpose. I asked that question to the Greens people who were at Newcastle and Senator Janet Rice said, look, we, I have received 20,000 emails about Palestine just in the last week, 20,000. So that's public pressure, isn't it? And maybe the climate... It sure is. We can't be defeatist yep. about this and be cynical about politics. We need to think, no, we have to be in there lobbying too. Well, if, you think, if you think about it, the politicians are one of the major places where the balance between what needs to be done and what can be done gets set. So if we don't respect that task, then we don't respect the processes by which whatever progress we're going to make is going to come. Thanks very much. So we've been talking to uh, Gowan Powell-Davies, who's the head of the Buddhist Council of New South Wales and of the... Federation of Australian Buddhist Councils. That's right. Thank you very much, Gowan. Vivian, thank you very much. That's it for the Climate Action Show. The Newcastle blockade got the ball rolling for much more disruptive action next year. And meanwhile, COP28 in Dubai, which seems to me is totally captured by coal, oil and gas, it rolls on. Thank you to speakers tonight. Dom from the Knitting Nanners, Sinead about the Hunter Jobs and Hunter Renewal, Sarah from Frontline Health Workers, Nicole from Doctors for the Environment, Graham with his big plan, Gawain from the New South Wales Buddhist Council, Thea from the ARC movement. Thanks also to Sue Higginson and the expert committee who found New South Wales 
could easily reduce emissions 100% by 2035 and is still pushing for that in Parliament. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Rare. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. And just to leave you with Adam Bant and Chris Bowen in the Federal Parliament on November the 30th, here's just a sample. Bant had been out with the protesters on Newcastle Harbour and Chris Bowen gives him heaps. From the leader of the Australian Greens. Thanks, Peter. My question's for the Prime Minister. The first job of government is to keep people safe, and today's climate statement reinforces the enormous threat of the climate crisis to Australia's national security. So why is Labor backing the massive Beetaloo, Barossa, Scarborough, Browse and Narrabri gas projects that will fast-track climate collapse? With today's figures showing emissions rising this year under Labor, rising, why is Labor opening new coal and gas projects and making Australia's people less safe? We call to the Minister for Energy and Climate Change. Well, thanks very much, Mr Speaker. I thank the Honourable Member for his question. And, of course, today the Government did release the annual Climate Change Statement, which is a requirement under the Climate Change Act passed by this Government and this Parliament. And, of course, I released the latest projections, which show we are now on track to achieve a 42% emissions reduction by 2030, up from 40% last year and getting close to our 43% target. But we've more to do. With 72 months Order. between now and 2030, it is a big lift. A big lift, Mr Speaker. Uh, but we are pleased with the progress we've made so far. We're pleased with the fact that projections are now on track to come down by 43%. Now, the Honourable Member uh, asked about uh, the need for new gas and other approvals. Order. I'll make this point, Mr Speaker. We also released the Climate Change Authority advice today. One of the recommendations of the Climate Change Authority advice uh, was to ensure adequate gas supply to gas-fired power stations as part of this transmission, a recommendation we accept and are implementing, Mr Speaker. That's why we brought down the gas code, the gas code to ensure that new gas is enabled for domestic supply, not international exports. This is the code the Greens sought to disallow. And, Mr Speaker, the Greens' gas campaign died the day they moved to disallow that gas code. It actually died that moment because their credibility went down the gurgler at that point. We know that because they moved the code. The no position didn't know what to do. They didn't turn up. They moved the disallowance. Who turned up to vote for them? Senator Canavan, One Nation Party and Senator Babbitt, the Coalition of Craziness. I mean, this is the, this is the degree of sophistication the Greens political party has brought to this debate. Yes, we need... We need to ensure an adequate supply of gas to the gas-fired power stations to underpin this most important economic transformation. The Honourable Member talks about coal. We continue to need metallurgical coal in particular, Mr Speaker, in particular. I've got to say we need more steel for this transition than ever before. Transmission towers can't be built by paper mache. It just can't be done. We need more steel across the world, and including Australia, and that requires coking coal while we're waiting for green steel to come on. All this is part of the important economic transformation. We will continue to manage getting emissions down and jobs up. Slogans, slogans do not get emissions down. They do not get jobs up. Paddling around Newcastle Harbour does not get emissions down and does not get jobs up. Good policy gets emissions down and jobs up, and that's what the Albanese government will continue to deliver. Well, I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that community radio 
3CR, what an awesome role you play in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work.